I have bad eyesight, but my retrospection is 2020. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of the QT Cast, the official podcast for the QTRL, the queer and trans research lab housed at the Bonham Centre for Sexual Diversity Studies at the University of Toronto. My name is Elliot and I'll be your host. In this special two-part graduate spotlight feature, you'll get to meet our amazing grad students and hear about their ongoing research projects. In today's episode, you'll meet the lab's graduate research assistants, Kaniko Lawton and Elio Colavito. And we're joined by Henry Young, one of our undergraduate assistants to the podcast as co-host. But before we continue, I have some special announcements regarding next year's cohort at the Queer and Trans Research Lab. The Bonham Center for Sexual Diversity Studies is calling for applications for the Graduate Research Assistantship, the GRA program, as part of the Queer and Trans Research Lab in 2023-2024. These applications are due on Friday, March 3rd, 2023. The program will provide two to three research assistantships to graduate students working in queer and trans studies in any discipline. The RA-ships are designed to provide training to our students in research methods and practices, social justice collaborations, and community outreach initiatives. Applicants are also asked to participate in a variety of events, such as presentations, workshops, panels, and other QTRL meetings. GRAs will be assigned to faculty and community members of the QTRL cohort and are expected to be living in the GTA during the time of the assistantship. The successful candidates will receive a stipend of $10,000. The assistantships will take place from September 2023 to June 2024. All GRAs are expected to be active members of the lab. The Bonham Centre also invites applicants for the doctoral dissertation completion grants, which are due Friday, March 3rd, 2023. Two to three dissertation completion grants for $5,000 each will be awarded annually to advanced graduate students whose work makes significant and original contributions to queer and trans studies in any discipline, and who are in the final year of their program. The awards are designed to assist full-time doctoral students to complete their thesis writing and defense. Successful applicants must be full-time doctoral students at the time of the award and will be asked to present their work to the QTRL. Now, without further ado, let's hear from our amazing graduate research assistants. So my name is Kanika Lawton, my pronouns are they, them, and I'm a graduate research assistant at the lab. Amazing. Elio, same question. My name is Elio Colavito, I use they, them pronouns, and I'm also a graduate assistant at the lab. That is fantastic. Uh, Kanika, can you tell me a little bit about your own personal work as well? Yeah, definitely. So I'm a second year PhD student in the Cinema Studies Institute, also doing the collaborative specialization at SDS. And a lot of my work is really interested in surveillance footage, mm. so looking at CCTV, police footage, drone footage, and I'm interested in the relationship between aesthetics and violence and space, and looking at like queer and trans and people of color methods of refusing surveillance. Wow, that's very prescient. <laughs> Thank you. It's a great time to be doing that research. <laughs> and so who have you found yourself uh, researching with at the lab here? So I'm researching with Shanna Yi, one of the um, fellows here. And we've been looking a lot at um, Asian American studies, Asian Canadian studies, and like diaspora studies, especially through the lens of feminism and feminist theory. I don't have a lot of background in Asian American studies or diaspora studies, so it's been very interesting looking at the intersection of 
that with feminism and look mm-hmm. at ways in which feminism, especially white feminism, has both like, you know, like failed like like women of color, mm-hmm. especially Asian women, and how it can like you know bridge the gap between like for example Asian American women, Asian Canadian women, and like the larger field of feminism. That's amazing. Thank you. I'm excited to ask you a bit more after, but Elio, let's jump to you. Can you tell me a bit about your own personal work? Yeah. Um, do you want me to do the whole... Do the whole spiel. The whole spiel, yeah, okay. the whole spiel. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> geez. Um, I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of History. I'm also doing the collaborative specialization in SDS at the Bonham Center. My personal research focuses on the making of a transmasculine community from the late 1960s, early 70s, till roughly 2005 as, as of right now, uh, but wow. we'll see how that end date changes as I go along. And uh, what I do is I basically look at all of the mutual aid, resource sharing networks, kinship, um, and how trans men and trans mass people kind of created architecture for living and thriving and surviving in, in uh, as we know, hostile environments uh, of the past and the present. So right. that's that's what I do. That's awesome. And who are you working with here at the lab? Uh, Professor T.L. Cowan is my lovely supervisor here at the lab. I'm helping her with her assisted living in the life of the mind project, which looks at um, faculty ADHD accommodations from a trans feminist crip lens and how we can better, uh, you know, better help faculty members and people in academia deal with the pressures um, and lack of support from from universities around mental health and things of that nature. So it's uh, it's been great so far. Yeah, I love hearing that. Thank you. This question is general to both of you, Kanika, if you'd like to go first. Yeah, um, for sure. How do you find working on your own research and then flipping back as a research assistant? Has it given you anything in your own work? Are you finding that productive or, or how has that been? It's absolutely been productive. Um, me and Shannon have been thinking about um, a potential monograph or anthology um, that we're pitching that looks at like the intersection of like feminism and Asian diaspora studies. And that's been really productive in my own work because so much of what I do is on trans and queer of color methods mm-hmm. and theories. And one of the big theories that we've been looking at is ornamentalism. So the ways in which like Asian women and femmes have been turned into like ornaments throughout history, in media, um, in popular culture. It's also been like very productive that sh- you know, she's in like women and gender studies, but she also has a background in media studies and right. that's what I do. So it's been interesting seeing how like Asian American studies is something I've always been interested in, but I've never had a chance to really study, yeah. especially in a Kenyan context. But be- being able to like learn from her, get all of these like recommendations has really like opened up like that side of my research. Amazing, thank you. Thank Elio, you. same question. Uh, I would actually say that my work at the QTRL with Professor Cowan has actually helped me still in a work sense, but more personally than the way that it's affected my research itself. Mm. Uh, Professor Cowan's project has given me the space to rethink what it means to be neurodivergent, how what it means, how it means to be neurodivergent in the, the spaces that I'm also trying to build uh, some kind of a career in. And so that's <laughs> that's been really game changing for me in thinking about how I work why I work, mm-hmm. what I'm doing to kind of help myself cope with the uh, environments not built for my own thriving, right? So right. that's, I think, the chief thing that's come out of helping Cowan with the project is just kind of rethinking my own place in 
this bigger world mm-hmm. that it, you know, it's often more comfortable not to think too hard <laughs> about what that all yeah, means. Yeah, we have to deal with the discomfort. Eh? Exactly. <laughs> Probe into that. So speaking of work on work, how have you both been finding balancing your time here at the lab with your own personal work? It definitely feels like it's going to be easier this semester now that I don't have coursework. Um, but I'm also, you know, building the reading list and right. all of that. In terms of balancing lab work and my own research, it's really helped me, I guess, really think about, okay, what's necessary, both for my own research and my own thriving, and also helping Shanna with her work in the lab as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also, I don't want to ever like only focus on one thing because I don't just do one thing. Like, of course. My background is already interdisciplinary. My background is in psychology. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then I was like, my minor was in film. So I'm like, let's go do that. And go all the way to grad school in cinema studies. That's awesome. Yeah. And then the specialization with SDS is like, it's already interdisciplinary. And now we're bringing in like, you know, like more feminist theory and Asian American diaspora studies. So I never want to just do one thing. Yeah. Um, I don't want to pigeonhole myself in anything. And that has also helped me consider like, okay, this is important to me. This is also important to me. How can I holistically bring them all together? Yeah, that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Elio, do you have anything to add to that in terms of work balance? I almost said work-life, but it's work-work balance. Yeah, work-work <laughs> balance. No life here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the QTRL gives me the opportunity to do the things that I'm missing in my home department in mm. terms of how I'm thinking methodologically and what have you. So it's really great to have another place to kind of toy around with some of the ideas that I have and that I, you know, like to think alongside other like-minded scholars who are in their own ways, you know, on the cutting edge of all kinds of fantastic ideas and stuff. And it's great to just be in the room. Uh, And so as long as there's that kind of dynamic relationship with the QTRL, it doesn't make it difficult to show up and to divide your time because it's such a, you know, fresh space um, and a very caring space at that one where people are, you know, supported, uh, not just financially, but also emotionally in our group check-ins and all of that great stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's just easy. It's easy to come to work and have a different work that yeah, I do right. in a, in a weird way. Multiple works. Yeah. I'm all glad of to the hear works. that it's working though for you, for both of you. Yeah. Um, and how did you both get involved in, in the research lab here? Yeah. Elio, do you want to go first? Yeah. Uh, the call for, applications went around the inbox the year prior and I kind of had my eye on it but didn't really take it too seriously the first time around and then um, you know this year after seeing all of the great stuff that the first round of people at the QTRL were doing and the kinds of awesome stuff that were coming out of the lab I was like okay I want to throw my hat in the ring this year for sure it sounds like a the place to be (laughs) so yeah I threw my hat in the ring and got lucky Amazing. And Kanika? I knew that it was darn up because the first year of QTRL was my first year of the PhD. So I was aware of this like new thing and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And I was taking a course with Jazz Route mm. and they were mentioning it. But it was on my radar and I was like, well, I'm like, I barely like got into the PhD program. Like, I'll think about it, but this is very much a later thing. Mm-hmm. And then I did the, um, the SDS curriculum to like fulfill like the requirements for the specialization and Diana was there and she emailed me encouraging me to apply to the lab and I was like oh this is something I wasn't really considering now but why not um I think it'll like really help me you know like get my things sorted 
hopefully earlier in the program. Yeah. And I got in and it was really exciting. And I told Jazz and it's been very, very good so far. And Jazz is actually on my committee now. So I learned about QTRL through them and now they're on my committee. So it feels very like full circle. Everything got tied with a bow. Those are the best stories. I love hearing that. So, So what I'm gathering is if you had any advice for anyone who's on the fence, the advice would be to apply. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. Yeah. I'm curious, um, Kanika, how do you typically approach your research? And maybe if you want to direct this question at somebody who might be struggling or doesn't know exactly how to start doing this kind of work. Yeah, definitely. I think for, because I'm so early in my own research, um, one of the big things for me is curiosity, like Mm. not foreclose on anything even if you think it might not be directly related to what you're doing it might come back and become relevant even like months later I have this very I have bad eyesight but my retrospection is 2020 (laughs) so I'll see connections and patterns like months later and noticing that you know, I thought I had disparate research interests, like looking at like papers from like past years, mm. but then noticing like threads like that went throughout my papers and throughout what my interests were when even though they were in different fields, it was still like I had like the same interests, the same questions were coming up. So I think my biggest piece of advice is curiosity. Yeah. Like if something interests you, it's it interests you for a reason. Right. Even if you don't know what that reason is just yet. And to keep asking questions and surround yourself with people who are willing to ask you questions as mm-hmm. well. Like they're supportive. And if they're supportive and they want you to thrive, they're going to ask you questions that make you pause and think and go, I didn't consider that yet, but maybe I should. I really like that. And and I find too, kind of burning through courses and your own research and your applications, like there's so much in the wake that mm-hmm. I personally forget to look back at. Old papers, even these kinds of stuff that obviously animate my interest. So. I think that's a great advice. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Elio, same question. Or anything to add. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'll definitely echo that curiosity is the most important component. But I think for me, it's it's I take my, my very old documents that are all very interesting. And uh, it's about trying to figure out how they fit. Mm. Um, how all of the thoughts that I'm having about a particular set of documents or some aspect of the history I'm trying to tell like what so what is kind of the the big question and I ask myself and so even on days where it's I don't really know where I'm starting or what I'm looking at or what I'm going to say about the things that I'm inevitably going to look at Mm. it's kind of easy at the end to just kind of have a very quick exercise repeatedly throughout of like so what Am, am I even saying anything yeah um does this mean anything or is this just a collection of fun facts for myself to go to bed with right. uh, and then <laughs> you kind of both. just rinse and repeat until your supervisor agrees that there's a thought on the page <laughs> something worth following yeah something worth continuing to write about yeah i love that thank you so much the question i'm going to ask is what's one of your favorite tidbits of information that you've come across in your research could be your personal research could be with your research assistantship but you can take favorite however you want it could be least favorite it could be um, the most appalling thing you've learned, the most exciting, surprising. Yeah, uh, actually, it's I, I'm lucky because it happened the last time that we met as a group. Mm. Um, during Professor Cowan's share until she was talking about compulsory temporality. Mm. And I think about temporality a lot in my own research, um, thinking about meaning making and memory and as an oral historian and stuff. So thinking about how compulsory temporality not only bears, bears weight on me as a researcher, but also on the people that I'm I'm talking to and the ways that they remember different aspects of the past, I think is an interesting thing that 
to play around with. Um, yeah. It's difficult to, you know what? We'll leave it there. <laughs> we'll leave it there. We'll leave it there. Dot, dot, dot. Yeah. That was great. Thank you. I think um, I have mine. Cool. And a lot of what I do is actually around violence and like different forms of violence. Mm. So this is an interesting fact because I found it appalling. <laughs> um, and then the more I read about it, the more I was like, okay, yeah. Not that it makes sense, but I'm just like, oh, there's like things are starting to slot into um, place. Right. Mine was learning, reading more about the ADA. Um, this was the American Disabilities Act that protected Americans with disabilities mm. in the United States and it passed in the early 1990s. And there was a lot of controversies around whether or not trans people should be included or if gender dysphoria should be considered a disability. Interesting. And looking at like trans studies within the context of mad and disability studies and just seeing these like really blurry lines between like disability in terms of being protected under right. disability laws as a trans person, but also not being medicalized as a trans person in that way right. has been fascinating as well as some um, not so appealing um, fun facts about the, the human rights campaign in the United States. I'm scared. <laughs> and how they didn't necessarily support this um, Employment Equity Act in the early 2000s that protected um, orientation, like sexual orientation, but didn't protect like gender identity and expression, mm. the first pass. Mm. So, you know, it's interesting going to like human rights discourses and be like fascinating. Why are we putting like different groups of individuals and pin them against one another in legislation. Right. Did that stop? <laughs> it has not stopped. It has not stopped. <laughs> it has not stopped. And I'm just like, okay, so my like hesitation around the HRC has a history. It's not just me being like, I'm a radical and this seems to be like a neoliberal nonprofit. <laughs> like there's a reason behind my feelings. This is a bit of a follow-up question that I kind of want to toss out to both of you. Um, feel free to answer as much or as little as you want, but I'm curious doing research around communities that violence often adheres to, how do you feel? Like, how does it make you feel? And do you have any tips to, I don't know, helping anyone else doing this kind of work? Yeah, thinking about obviously like violence and mm. so much of the work I do is around like death, quite right. literally like death and forms of Mormon mourning and remembrance. And like the violences being perpetrated against like the communities I'm a part of. Mm. A lot of it is also like I have a, um, a history with like affect theory and like right. thinking with feelings, um, with the archives of feelings and what it means to do work and be affected by that. And at the same time, not trying to displace that right. affect, yeah. not trying to displace why you have these feelings making sure that I don't turn into my own object of study mm -hmm. and my, making sure my communities are my objects of studies, but also f knowing that like this feels bad and being able to feel bad instead of like, I need to like repress this because right. I'm a serious scholar who's displaced from everything. Yeah. Right. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to be this detached scholar um, who's like doing like this weird, like study of like my own communities. It feels like ethically like, really bizarre yeah i agree so i think like being able to sit with the bad feelings and also knowing when to step away from it and sometimes you do need breaks and sometimes it is too much mm -hmm. and that doesn't mean you're like a bad scholar it means you're human right it means you're human and you're doing research that's important 
but there's only so much you can handle mm -hmm. and being able to like take a step back and like surround yourself with forms of like joy and forms of flourishment like i look a lot at like trans like maladjustment which i got from cameron awkward rich's new book but also like trans joy and what that can look like what's right. the flip side of that so like being in a community and having like good like networks is also really important when you do like more like individual research yeah that's so important thank you for that elio do you have anything to add to that i i, I think if i could as eloquently say something it would be the exact same thing kanika said <laughs> amazing but yeah you know sometimes it really does feel like shit and you have to just let it feel like shit mm -hmm. do something with the shit and then go hang out with a friend or do what you need to do to have a life outside of working through shit I think yeah. that was eloquent as shit. As eloquent as it's going to be today. It's <laughs> amazing. I just wanted to ask each of you if you had anything to ask the other one, either about your research or your role here at the lab. I have a question for you, mm -hmm. and it's about oral histories. Okay. Like doing that type of work, especially in terms of like its methodology, because oral histories is something I'm interested in, but I have no idea, like, how to go about it, you know what I mean? I'm so used to like written histories and like going into the archive of images and documents and all of that. But what about like oral histories and like how that, I guess, changes what we understand like history to look like? Big question. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it, I think it's totally game changing. Henry was just talking before we sat down and started the podcast about how a lot of what's on written record is written and recorded and preserved by, you know, cishet white dudes that don't want other people's histories in the archive. And that's obviously a very simplistic mm -hmm. conversation about how that happens, but it's enough for the time being. Yeah. Um, yeah and so oral histories are, at least from my research's perspective, is often the only way that I can get some of the information. Uh, from the communities themselves and not from that, you know, medicalized, institutionalized documentation. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's totally game-changing because, one, the uh, historical actors are in the driver's seat themselves. They're shaping the document. Mm -hmm. If we look at the oral history interview as a document and as a text, they're shaping the text. I'm sharing authority with... Uh, those people and so I'm also shaping the text and so there's this really amazing and also quite scary dance that you're doing with someone that you oftentimes have a lot of respect and admiration for because they did something really important for your community right <laughs> and so there's this little dance of um, curiosity but also appreciation that often bridges a generational divide mm. uh, and it's in my opinion a, a pretty magical um, space to occupy I don't really remember what your question was other than like <laughs> oral history. Um, but. I really love that answer about like so many documents are part of that like medicalized, institutionalized, mm. like very like written by cis white men. <laughs> but like oral histories, like it changes like how we understand historiography. Like what history, how it can be documented, but also how it can be like you know, distributed. I really like that. Yeah, from a public history standpoint, too, it's really interesting because most people are not going out to museums for funsies these days, <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. for, for the most part. And so oral histories have this really um, amazing quality to them where you can put them up online and have people interact via social media. Mm -hmm. And it's a different way of interacting with history than we've ever really had. And the medium lends itself nicely to the way that people are consuming information mm -hmm. these days too. So it's kind of this 
um, happy while not perfect marriage between the source and the output. Mm. Um, it's exciting. There's lots of cool work going on out there. It's really exciting. That's great. <laughs> I do have a question for you. Okay. I know that you're also a poet. Yes, I am. <laughs> uh, and I was curious about the relationship between your poetry and that side of you as a thinker and a writer and what you're doing, you know, in the institution and someone getting a PhD and doing the, doing the marathon. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, so I am a poet and I've been published in quite a few places and I've been thinking a lot about like the poet as scholar, the scholar as poet, mm -hmm. um, not just in my own work and like how that affects my poetry practice but also my scholarship, like Bell Hooks is such an important writer to me. And also as a poet and also as a scholar and also as someone whose pedagogy is one that I want to model my pedagogy mm. after. But also look at like Diane Brand's work as well and how important she is as a poet and a scholar. And I think the person that really made me feel like, of course, like these are the like huge thinkers that I really respect. I think the person that really made me go, oh, I can write scholarship in a way that isn't like dry mm -hmm. and like difficult to read. And we're in a two hour seminar and it took us those two hours to go over like maybe half a paragraph because <laughs> we can't actually understand what's going on and none of us can agree and there's 10 of us. <laughs> the scholar that made me think, oh, there's another way to write scholarship was Sadia Hartman, mm -hmm. um, especially in tell your mother, but really in Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments. And that book, not just in terms of like, there's new ways of doing history, it's, there's new ways of writing about this. And it's poetic, and it is deliberately poetic. And I really like that. I like that bridge in between like poetics and also scholarship of you don't have to do one or the other. Right. And Claudia Rankin's Citizen and how she talks about race in media and how she goes between these like scholastic essays are also personal essays are also poems and seeing like this bridge of genres and it has both helped my practice as a scholar and helped my practice as a poet where it's like I don't have to do one or the other I can do both mm. and they can inform you know those sides of my writing life. Thank you both for that. That was fantastic. And so let's transition a bit. Henry, who is research assistant to the podcast, has come up with these amazing questions. So I'm just going to shift this over to you, Henry. Thanks, Elliot. Um, so I guess as just a teaser to the people who are actually listening to our podcast in regards to deeper insights into the work that you do, not that we haven't already been doing that, I thought that this question could also resonate with Kanika specifically, given mm -hmm. that you study surveillance studies mm -hmm. and you know, the way that we process and store information these days is changing so much, right? Mm -hmm. And so, Elio, you said that you studied transmasculine mutual mm -hmm. aid networks from the 1970s to 20s, which I think is like a time period where, you know, we slowly started to enter like the digitalized age, mm -hmm. right? And so how do you feel a lot of these mutual aid networks have changed over this time period? Ooh, how have they changed? Yeah, um, or if anything has changed at all, honestly. Yeah, <laughs> things, have, things have certainly changed. Yeah. Um, the thing I think that when these networks kind of start forming in the early 60s, they start out of um, this place of lacking, right? And so it's often trans men looking at each other, whether they have, uh, and they, they often have specialty outside of being trans in fields that equip them to do this kind of work. So, you know, someone who is a nurse who turns resource sharer, psychologist turned, uh, or 
you know, that kind of clinician turned research or a resource sharer. Sorry, I'm getting all, I'm jumping all <laughs> over the place here. Um, and so it's these kind of like professional turned personal turned social networks that start to form where these guys are assisting each other. Um, into the 80s and 90s, they get real groups, real support groups that are meeting in buildings every Friday and people are giving out safe needles and talking about harm reduction before we were talking about harm reduction and, and that kind of stuff. Um, and then into the late 90s, early 2000s, those spaces, um, they shift online. And one of the reasons they shift online uh, is because the world around the spaces is not the safest to be meeting in broad daylight at the queer center, waving your trans flags around, right? And so they move online uh, for safety, but also for accessibility, right? Uh, a lot of the people who need these spaces can't, don't have time in their day to come to the city core every other Friday and have some sandwiches with their brothers. And that's just kind of what it looks like. So they kind of change in that way um, throughout the period that I'm looking at. And then as we approach today, there's this yearning for that in-person uh, real space again, where people want to be in rooms having sandwiches with their brothers. Uh, <laughs> partially maybe because it's a little safer to do it now, but also I think the pandemic has really changed a lot of the way that uh, we prioritize socializing and in-person connection and t human touch and all those lovely things we we took for granted before. Mm -hmm. And so that's the long story short. Uh, it sounds like ultimately that transition had a really resounding impact mm -hmm. on the community. Totally. So thanks for talking about that. In regards to Kanika, you being a writer, mm -hmm. um, when you think about like your perfect collaborative manuscript, like let's let's be imaginative here, right? <laughs> um, are there any artists or writers that you would like to collaborate or work with for future publications, whether it be something that's in the academic space or purely in your creative space, like the poetry, the amazing poetry works that you do, by the way? Definitely. I mean, these are all like very like speculative. I do mm -hmm. like the speculative. Um, I know Franny Chow, like personally, mm -hmm. and she's actually the partner of Cameron Awkward Rich. Yeah. Um, and the way she's an Asian American writer and poet, and the way that she bridges, like what I said earlier about the ornamental, when it comes to like Asian American women and femmes, as well as technology and like the Anthropocene mm -hmm. and all of these different like questions in her poetry is so fascinating to me that like I would love to do, like she was the first person I thought about in terms of doing like a collaborative, like lawn poem that's actually a lawn essay, that's actually a lawn monograph, mm, yeah. that's actually like a lawn <laughs> journal entry. And I really like it when poets become like novelists and when poets become scholars. But I also don't think this is like a one and done thing. I yeah. think like, you know, I don't believe in the whole like, if you're a poet, you can't write a novel. If you're a novel, you can't write a poetry book. I do think that these are very slippery borders. I also don't believe in borders. So <laughs> I don't believe in those. There are distinctions, but you can like slip across them. So she's mm -hmm. probably at the top of my list. Um, and I really respect Cameron Awkward Rich's work, mm -hmm. both as a poet and as a scholar, especially in trans studies. So those are probably like the two big ones for me. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, that's lovely. Um, I think I'll pass it over back to Elliot now for the wrap up, but thank you guys. Thank Thanks. you so much for that, Henry. Uh, so how have you both found your time with the QTRL so far? I love it, honestly. It's been so generative and honestly joyous, mm -hmm. like being able to come here for our share and tales and like I'm, I feel very fortunate that in my program is supportive, 
Right. And yet coming here and like being surrounded by people who are not in the same program in me, who aren't doing the same things mm-hmm. as me. And then like being in a space where we can have like hard, difficult conversations about things that affect us and our communities. At the same time that we can have like joyous conversations, that we can laugh as much as we reflect. And I really like that a lot. Mm-hmm. It's really helped me out both as a scholar, but also just as a person, like navigating what is very frequently a space that is very white, very male, and very cis, and very Canadian Mm -hmm. (laughs) in terms of like citizenship and also upper class too. Mm -hmm. So navigating spaces that aren't meant for people such as me and the people that I really care about and be able to come into community and talk about what it means to be in the space also in this space, which I kind of like. Yeah. It's like, we're going to refuse the institution while inside the institution. It's very undercommons. Um, <laughs> I love time. it. I love I, that. Yeah. <laughs> the, it's just funny, I'm reflecting on all the times, yeah, we'll talk about something in a room that's as serious as, you know, like a mental health crisis, then immediately it's like, what queer TV show did you watch? And like, <laughs> they're just on the tail of each other. And I love that. Elio, same question. Yeah, um, I'll forego all of the things you already mentioned. <laughs> Kanika keeps stealing my thunder. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, it's okay. Um, yeah, I mean, the QTRL, like I said before, it's great. It's interdisciplinary. It gives me something a community, an intellectual community outside of my home department where I can share ideas with like-minded people who are also doing really different things, but I do still feel like I'm constantly filling my bucket mm-hmm. with so many interesting um, and useful ways of thinking about my own research and my own communities and the communities that mine rub up against uh, in various ways. And so, yeah, it's a generative, uh, pretty cool place to be. I. I feel lucky um, mm. these kinds of spaces did not exist and still don't exist in a lot of universities. So just to be able to be here, I know, is such a privilege. Um, and if I could do it every year, I would. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. <laughs> Thank I you for agree. that. <laughs> if you both had the chance to start your academic career over and if you had to select a new discipline that is something that you don't work in right now, what would you select? Elio, do you want to go first? <laughs> That's so hard. Um, <laughs> you also don't need to have an aptitude for it. Because, like, I would probably do physics or astrophysics. Can't do math. So, but I okay. want to. <laughs> I would do geography. Cool. Just thinking about space in a way that historians don't often think about space, I think is really interesting and mm. uh, something that I do a little bit of reading on the side every once in a blue moon and try to weave into my own research and writing and so I think to commit myself fully to uh, geography would be interesting yeah cool fun maybe in another lifetime (laughs) maybe and Kanika I was also thinking of astrophysics (laughs) because I really like the astronomy courses I took and physics is weirdly the one science I'm not bad at Mm. but I'm also bad at math so I don't know what happened there share your talents with me (laughs) (laughs) I think I had TA in physics who was like physics is just the way it is and that like really stuck with me I was like physics is just the way things are meanwhile everything else you're like deconstructing everyday life (laughs) exactly but not physics gravity is real guys it is real (laughs) but probably astrophysics and honestly architecture cool because I complain a lot about ugly buildings (laughs) (laughs) how do you feel about robots oh my goodness 
I feel like if my friends who are gonna listen to this podcast are like, we already know. <laughs> I have thoughts on brutalism, but mm-hmm. Robards has seen me in so many different iterations. I'm like, I like that weird looking building. Yeah, it gets a pass for that, eh? It gets a pass because <laughs> of my relationship to it. <laughs> I feel I feel similarly. Okay, so then finally, hobbies. Do either of you have any mm-hmm. hobbies? What do you like to do outside of all academic stuff? So I do write poetry, although I don't really see it as a hobby. I do see it as like another way to cultivate my writing practice. Yeah. In terms of hobbies, I'm trying to think. I mean, that's a pretty good one. (laughs) I I said not academic related, but that's not not fair. Not academic related. Um, I was like, does going to the movies count as a hobby? Yes, it does. That's one of my hobbies. I love going to the movies. I love like going to like retrospectives and like, oh, we're going to go to this like tiny theater that's showing like a trash movie. Let's go right now. I love seeing like bad movies. Oh, me too. And like watching bad TV. I don't believe in guilty pleasure, so I'm like, let's watch things that aren't good, but they're hilarious. I love that. There's only pleasure. That's amazing. And Elio, how about you? Yeah, I go to the movies a fair bit Mm. myself. Uh, I listen to a lot of music. I like to have a camera on me a lot of the time. Not not in a serious way, Mm -hmm. in a point-and-shoot drop it off at downtown camera way um, downtown camera shout out downtown camera. yeah and then uh i i do actually lift a weight every Ooh. every so often been known to lift a weight been, been, been known to go to the gym and oh, lift geez. a weight every once in a while so That's amazing. those are my hobbies yeah thank you so much is there anything that i didn't ask either of you that you were hoping we would cover this has been good so Yay. i don't think so either thank you thank you both so much this yeah. was amazing thanks thanks for having us podcast was made possible by the Marcus Bonham Center for Sexual Diversity Studies at the University of Toronto, St. George Campus.